if you are not in the field, like someone looking from the outside, artificial intelligence looks like a very singular field, like something with very singularity when you have to do a lot of things. But it's something that probably has the most amount of collaboration, right? Like you work with data analysts, domain experts. I work with people who are expert in trees and So hello everyone and welcome to the AI Stories Podcast. I'm Neil Lizer. I'm a data scientist at Iwoka, and I will be your host. So today our guest is Smriti Mishra. Smriti first did a Bachelor of Technology in Electronics and Communication Engineering in Bangalore. She then had a bunch of experiences, but at some point she actually moved to Sweden, where she worked as an AI researcher at the Royal Institute of Technology in Stockholm. In 2020, she joined Erdbank as the head of data science, and Erdbank is a startup which is financing carbon projects to scale climate solutions. She is now actually back to the Royal Institute of Technology, where she recently started a new position as an applied AI and data science researcher, but she's still based in Sweden. So today we'll talk about Smiriti's career, about transitioning from electronics to machine learning and data science, about moving from India to Sweden, but we'll also talk about AI applied to climate change, about working in industry vs. working in research, and we'll hear Smriti's advice on how to progress in your career. All right, so if you enjoyed the episodes, don't hesitate to follow us on LinkedIn and subscribe to the AI Stories YouTube channel. Let's start with the fun bit now. Hi, Smriti, how is it going? How are you today? Hi, uh, I'm really good and uh, really happy to be here with you. And, um, you know, sometimes the weeks can be hectic, but yeah, hopefully the day is done. (laughs) Yeah, good. Happy to connect with you. We chatted like, I don't know, a few months ago, but finally we managed to record the episode. So yeah, really looking forward to our conversation. Me too. Really looking forward to it. (laughs) So I mentioned in the intro that you first studied electronics and communication engineering in India. So I'm curious, how did you go from this in India to moving to Sweden and working on AI and data science? How did you do this transition? What happened in in your life? Um, So for me, it was basically two important key motivators um, that sort of, you know, like helped me to explore the field of artificial intelligence, machine learning, Um, maybe a couple of like side factors also, but the two key motivators were that um, when I was doing my bachelor's, I tried out a lot of different things um, because I hated electronics. Why? uh, Why did you hate it? I don't know. It was like a lot of writing and uh, yeah, like a lot of uh, calculus, vectors. Yeah, It was fun in the beginning when I was doing integrations and differentiations in school, but it just got too much for me, I guess, at a point. And maybe the way um, we were learning it as well, it was not very applied, uh, more theoretical than I really wanted it to be that sort of helped me lose interest in that. Mm -hmm. So, um, and yeah, like a lot of the subjects like VLSI, communications, they were, as I said, like very theory-based. That's why I decided to specialize in this. um, Like we had three domains that we could specialize in. One was VLSI, which is more of like embedded um, technology. Then we had communication and signal processing so i stuck with signal processing because it's like more of like applied mathematics for your transform stuff and also has a very close correlation with image processing um signal processing and 
eventually machine learning, uh, pattern recognition, all those things. So um, yeah, so then uh, I worked on one of the non like uh, one of all student satellites, nano satellites in India, and uh, I worked on the detumbling part of the satellite. So when you when once you launch the satellite. We have to stabilize it. So I worked on the stabilization part using C, C++, like a lot of coding. So then I realized that I like the coding part, mm-hmm. um, but I don't really like very mechanical applications, mostly because I didn't have the background and, you know, domain expertise and understanding what you're doing is so important. So, um, but then I wrote the paper on it and then it got um, accepted at the International um, Aeronautical Federation in Bremen, Germany, um, back in 2018. And I came to present the paper. And that's when I attended uh, one deep learning lecture uh, at ETH Zurich um, under Ander Konukoglu, the professor. And it was just so amazing. And I was like, this is probably something that I want to do and I want to explore. And I was always like into linear algebra, and uh, uh, probability, permutation, combinations, they always really um, intrigued me. And at the same time, I also had a very close relative um, who was uh, suffering from cancer, but we didn't exactly, we couldn't discover at the right time to talk with the help of doctors and stuff uh, that it's cancer. So she had a tumor and instead of uh, removing it, the tumor was slit open. So basically it spread all across and it just got so much worse. Uh, probably could have been treated if we knew at the right time. So this was something that, you know, like kept bothering us or was in our mind that what if we knew, you know, like using technology or using something, if we knew that it was uh, cancer, then we would have approached it different. Um, and she probably would have been with us too. So, um, so these were the two uh, key motivators. And so um, I started taking subjects within pattern recognition, artific- uh, artificial neural networks, um, pattern recognition, I said already that, um, probability more of like linear algebra, basics, statistics, um, machine learning, and all these subjects uh, in order to build like a foundation around artificial intelligence, which I lacked before. And the first project that I ended up doing in machine learning was a lung cancer detection and prediction model. Um, And eventually um, I developed an interest around the healthcare domain in general and uh, the applications of machine learning and in general like technology around it. So uh, that's how I started um, probably in this field. And then I wrote a lot of cold emails to professors in Europe. And uh, sorry, can I just can I just jump back um, still on what you mentioned before because you already shared a lot of info and it was I think quite also interesting and quite a yeah sad story I guess for I mean that's someone basically what made you realize the importance of AI was first of all this lecture that you really enjoyed but also the story of your friends um did both of those events happen at the same time and after those two events you were like okay i really want to start a career in ai and also can you go a bit deeper into why was it because you saw the impact that ai could have on people's life um yeah so this happened pretty much within a duration of two and a half three months so almost parallelly um, and then we lost her uh, some months after I came back from uh, the Europe trip that I had gone to in Germany. So it was almost at the same time that all of this happened. And uh, yeah, hence it was like a huge motivator for me. And um, like if someone asks about one of my key strengths, um, I don't think it's technology or it's communication or anything. It's probably just that. I don't think I know the concept of like giving up in life, you know, it's like, um, even if everyone in the world is like, no, this is not possible. I would be like, okay, let's at least try and make it happen. If not that, then the closest thing to that. So uh, for me, it was really important that, you know, like I contribute in a way that at least someone does not go through the same thing that we did. 
and uh, in my head it was very um, it was not a difficult task to achieve right like a correct diagnosis of cancer with the technology and the world we live in and everything so advanced it should not be a very complex task so um, that's one of the reasons that i wanted to work in it in the field and wanted to sort of make sure that you know like uh, someone else doesn't go through it basically no i see yeah that makes complete sense yeah i understand and yeah it should have been quite difficult so is it at this point that you actually realize okay i want to do ai but i want to do ai for healthcare because you had this story with um the person that was close to you and so you wanted to help with this and that's why you started in healthcare essentially um yeah that's definitely like a very key reason that i started in healthcare and after that even when i was working at earth bank um within climate change domain also something that's very close to i guess most people right now um i did a freelancing um consulting like part time project 5 months in healthcare again so healthcare is something that's always going to be super close to me um if it's a project that does not require a huge amount of domain experience then i'm always like up for a healthcare project i also worked very briefly with uh, one project in uh, which was based out of the united states um as well like in november last year so it's like i keep trying to you know uh, keep in touch with healthcare projects so you work in healthcare i think you do you start in sweden is that right when you start working in ai it's in sweden and then at some point you decide to switch from healthcare to climate change why do you switch from one well you remain within the ai field but you move from healthcare to climate change so why do you switch from one to another um so basically i was working within computational neuroscience but i was working in abstract conditions um because i i like had a decent i mean not even decent like i had a very minor understanding of how human brain works like different parts of the human brain like hippocampus amygdala what it does uh, what part gets triggered when but then um computational neuroscience requires like so much more in depth understanding of um the biology aspects as well and uh, i mean i could have done it maybe but um at that point i thought that um maybe you know um i can try a different domain and when i was in india i didn't really realize what was happening like with climate so much me because i was in university there like i was going to school and uh, you know like the priorities were a little different at that time um with the paper and you know like family and uh, like what was happening and it wasn't also so made um aware of you know like the issues of climate change back then in india like back in 2018 i think now it's so much better um but when i came to sweden i realized i had some friends who were studying sustainability at kth um the royal institute of technology and uh, my second winter in stockholm um in like the winter of 2020 um like late 2019 early 2020 that was my second winter here and uh, it's not just one day like a proper snow where the snow stays and you have like knee deep snow and stuff it used to flurry but very less snow and i realized that you know like it's not good for you know like the climate in general for nordic countries there were like uh, ice caps that were melting um early 2020 there were some horrible uh, bushfires in australia and i was working at earth bank no i was working at kth back then but um i was still you know like keeping in touch with everything and so um by the time i decided that i would look for a job i was sort of um, aware in my head that i wanted to be either in healthcare domain or climate um and i got a good opportunity in climate and that's how i got into it okay okay i see so if you if i recap from now you studied your bachelor in india you didn't like electronics 
So you moved to AI because uh, because you were really interested in deep learning and because of the story um, of your relative um, that you experienced. And after that, you start working in AI and healthcare in research at KTH, the Royal Institute of Technology. Um, but then at some point, you actually realize that climate is also important and you end up working at Herd Bank. Is that right? You're making yeah. the, the switch. Yeah. So, um, I mean, I think I had my options open within healthcare, but I just had. And also the problem was that um, probably I think one of the problems also was at that point, if I think of it now, um, was that within healthcare, um, you need the language. Um, like if I'm working in Sweden, I would need mm-hmm. at least some understanding of the language, right? Because most of the documentations, the interactions, like a lot of things, uh, they are in Swedish. I mean, I wouldn't say that it was like an absolute barrier, but it's kind of limited my options a little, at least. Um, and yeah, there were a lot of very interesting projects happening uh, back then at uh, um, Earth Bank and in general in the Swedish uh, startup industry and even like within big companies about sustainability, climate change. And uh, yeah, so it just intrigued me so much. And uh, I really understood the importance of, uh, you know, if we don't act right now, what would happen to the future generations? So, yeah. Okay, no, I see. That makes sense. So let's let's talk about Herd Bank now. You mentioned, well, you work there as the head of data science. So first of all, I wasn't familiar with Herd Bank before this before recording the episode or before we chatted. So what is Herd Bank? What is the company doing? And can you maybe explain on a high level why is AI helping the company? Um, yeah, definitely. Um, so Earthbank um, is a startup that basically it's a climate fintech um, startup, which works within the domain of uh, carbon sequestration, um, analyzing uh, or understanding, getting a better understanding of how much carbon is stored in a certain biome or biodiversity. And uh, um, also working within the digital payment industry. Um, so basically, um, I think it started back in September of 2019 and I joined in August, 2020. So pretty early. Um, and, uh, people are like extremely driven and nice, like, you know, uh, to actually make a difference and putting in all the efforts they can, um, and a very diverse team as well, the CEO, um, and, uh, um, the um, COO, they are from Australia. Mm-hmm. Um, we have a compliance uh, person who is like the head of sort of like leads the sustainability division, like uh, environmental division. He's from Sweden. Um, there are some people working in from Prague, um, Budapest, like a lot of different places like UK. So a very diverse, like a nice cocktail of, you know, like different cultures, different ideas, innovations. Um and yeah, like right now, even uh, when I'm working for the AI for diversity, I realized that, you know, diversity and inclusion, like it's so important to bring in mm-hmm. innovation. It's sort of something that brings yeah. it all together. So, um, so yeah, so uh, back then we were working with um, using satellite images, uh, 2D and 3D um, data from satellite images to um, get a better understanding of the carbon uh, sequestration. And uh, this would eventually help uh, landowners, uh, small landowners who couldn't really get their area verified um, for the amount of carbon that they are working very hard towards um, sequestering. Um, So it would help them get an estimate and then they could get incentivized the right way. Um, So that's what Earth Bank is doing. And for that, like uh, using uh, artificial intelligence, remote sensing, geographical information systems and uh, you know like some really cool technology i learned so much and still so much to learn <laughs> but yeah can we maybe dive a bit deeper into the concept of carbon sequestration i don't know if everyone is familiar with this um how does it work essentially and how how does your company make money in the end and how do you help people um 
who are planting trees or doing good things for the planet? How do you help them as well? Um, so it's a very um, interesting concept of carbon sequestration, which I also actually learned uh, when I started working for Earth Bank. Um, so basically, um, you know, like if you are, um, you know, like living your life uh, in general, you use uh, um, light, electricity, um, heating, if you're living in Sweden or any of the colder countries, um, or if you're living in something like some place like India, you use a lot of air conditioner, you can't survive without it. Um, so yeah, so when we do all these things, or even based on what we eat, right? Like if we eat a lot of meat or animal-based products, um, or, uh, you know, um, Coca-Cola, <laughs> things like that, like our general uh, normal everyday habits. Um, based on that, we basically emit a lot of carbon um, into the carbon, carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. And um, basically, that's the reason for climate change, right? Like, if you look at it, that it's difficult to change people's habits. I think of it as it as simple as that. If we all understood um, better, then it would have been a little, you know, easier to deal with, maybe. Um, so, uh, shopping, that's also like a huge thing when it comes to um, emitting carbon. So things like that are normal activities. I think it's also, also because we are just maybe a bit, well, some of us or a lot of us are also selfish. Like even some, I mean, we kind of know about it, but we still, because we, because we don't see it or because it doesn't seem real or because it doesn't, doesn't really impact our day-to-day -day lives. Okay. Maybe one year it snows less, as you mentioned, but you're not going to get hurt or have a big impact. Maybe that's also why we're, yeah, yeah, we're not doing enough. Absolutely. I definitely agree. I mean, uh, right now, as Barack Obama also mentioned, um, Mr. Barack Obama, that um, like we are the last generation who can do something about it and the first generation who can actually feel or see some effects of it. Um, but then the effects are maybe not significant enough for us to change our everyday habits, right? Um, so um, I think if people made like a little wiser decision, right? If you already have like four pairs of shoes, you don't need six. Mm -hmm. so, so things like that. It's as simple as that, in my opinion. So, um, so yeah, so when you have all these carbon emissions um, in order to um, basically reduce the effect of the carbon dioxide that's being emitted, um, what we can do is that we can plant trees or take care of already existing trees, et cetera, mm -hmm. like not cut them, um, not indulge in deforestation, illegal poaching, et cetera. So um, basically when the um, carbon dioxide from the atmosphere is absorbed into a certain biodiversity, it's stored or sequestered, and then it stays there and it's not in the environment. So that whole concept is the concept of carbon uh, sequestration. And uh, so basically, if we have um, X amount of carbon emission, we can calculate our carbon footprint, which is basically just um, a, like, you know, a measure of how much carbon you're emitting. And then based on that, we can sequester a um, similar or same amount of carbon um, carbon dioxide. Like if I have uh, like plant trees for that, or uh, you know, like take care of or adopt a certain tree or certain area based on how much my carbon sequestration is. So something like that. That's kind of the concept that our business model that it works on. I just now wanted to know how AI plays a role in climate change? Like why is AI so important in this sector? And how did you use AI basically to help you with that? Um, yeah, definitely. Um, that's a very, very interesting question. And uh, so I have used uh, artificial intelligence to, you know, um, work with carbon sequestration. And uh, we actually ended up filing uh, a patent um, mm -hmm. When I was working at Earth Bank, I think it's still pending. They take a long time. <laughs> but um, yeah, and currently uh, when I'm working as a researcher, like an applied AI and data science researcher here at KTH Royal Institute of Technology again, um, 
I'm also um, using artificial intelligence um, and some of GIS, geographical information systems, um, for you know, like uh, making better climate decisions or uh, in order to basically tackle climate change in general. And so, can, so can, before we dive into this AI at your new position, can you explain? Um, I understand we, we're not going to talk in details about Urbank. We're going to talk in more details about AI at your new position. But why did you make this change? Like you were the head of data science and then you decide to kind of go back to research, if I understand well, so or back to university. Um, why did you make this change from Urbank to KTH? Um, so, yeah, so I actually want to do my master's mm -hmm. and um, it would be very difficult to do it working with a startup with a lot of responsibilities. And I thought that I would not be able to actually give my 100% um, because sometimes it can be really long hours, right? And uh, the startup was also growing, which means a lot more responsibilities if I stayed. And uh, I have a master's admit from a university in Sweden, Uppsala University, which is the oldest university here in data science, machine learning statistics. Um, so I wanted to, you know, come back to research so that I can like work parallelly. And uh, I thought it would be a good experience also because if I'm working at a university and also doing master's, um, it would be like a unique experience and I wouldn't have to look for student jobs. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, I see. So you're doing both at the same time. You're doing research plus master. Um, so I'll start my master's uh, from 29th August, but um, it's all set. Okay. They, also, they also said that my fee is wavered, so I'm good. <laughs> okay, no, great. So yeah, can you, sorry, I cut you, but can you now move back to explain then what is your research about and how do you use AI to help improve the climate, climate change? Yeah, uh, definitely. So um, I can give you an example of what um, I'm doing right now at my job yeah, sure. at KDH. Um, so I'm working on um, sort of analyzing uh, the, car the change in forest cover, deforestation, carbon sequestration, and trying a little bit on um, understanding the soil carbon, uh, soil organic carbon, uh, which is basically the um, carbon that's stored in the soil. And you analyze like the moisture and everything, which also involves some lab tests. So, um, yeah. So trying to work on all of those right now um, at here in this university, also working on the same things for the development of like towards the development of a commune in Sweden, um, Oster uh, Gotland commune. So um, there's this university um, or institute based in between that area. And this area is uh, surrounded by forests, a lot of like mm -hmm. um, not very dense, like scattered forest area. And uh, it's a unique uh, place because it's uh, carbon uh, neutral as of now, or at least like based on the research that I read. So um, I'm doing an analysis where I collect satellite images and uh, from like different sources, open source or through the university or like different ways. And uh, then based on different satellite bands, I can extract different information that I need. Um, like a satellite image in general has 14 different bands. So based on what information you want to um, analyze, you can use a combination of whatever bands you need. So right now I'm working on the red, green, blue, I, uh, uh, infrared, near infrared bands mostly, and also combining it with some 3D um, uh, satellite data like digital elevation model or digital surface models, et cetera. And uh, based on these, I can get the count of trees, uh, height and girth, something like that. And then understanding uh, the species um, of the tree, for example, and uh, also um, if I can get an estimate of when it was planted, so all that information can give me, uh, help me get an approximation of the carbon that could be sequestered in that particular region. So I yeah. can, uh, yeah. Okay, I see. So you have like a lot of data, you mentioned elevation data, satellite images, and you're, you're trying to predict or to estimate 
the type of trees and the number of trees that there are in your region. Is that right? Um, so what, I, what is the output of your machine learning model, essentially? Yeah. So I can actually get the uh, trees, like the tree species and uh, the plantation year from the database okay. uh, when planted. Um, so that data is easy to get. So uh, the output would be um, an estimation of how much carbon is sequestered in this area, um, like maybe like 1600 gigatons of carbon or something like that. Um, and uh, it can also, and the output could also be something like forest cover. Like back in 2010, uh, there was X amount of forest cover. And now it's like Y amount and what's the change if there's the net loss or gain, which area there's a loss, which area there's a gain. So things like that. Okay, no, that makes sense. So you want to estimate the amount of carbon that your region can actually sequestrate, which means process and take out of the of the air, essentially, in simple terms. Is that right? Yeah. I'm not a climate expert. Um, and how do you train such a model? Like how, because you need data on what the carbon sequestration volume or whatever amount was during the previous days or the previous year. So how do you train such a model? Um, so it's usually like, um, I think the last time I worked on it, I used probably 10 GB of data, which was uh, my laptop was like my Mac was dying. Um, <laughs> it took, uh, it said 33 hours to train the model. And I was working on a CNN uh, convolutional neural network model. Um, so it said it would take 38, uh, 33 hours. Um, but then uh, this is cloud provider back then when I was working on, um, you know, like sort of by myself ish kind of like, kind of remote, uh, not exactly in the premises. Um, so I used a um, online cloud provider uh, paper space and I used a GV100 um, into eight GPUs. And then it was trained in eight hours, I think, like seven and a half, eight hours. But uh, right now, um, since I'm associated with the um, university and I'm here physically in Sweden, um, mm -hmm. not remote anymore, I can just uh, request them for, uh, you know, like a computer with a higher uh, processing And um, I have to fill in like a request, maybe like three weeks and two, three weeks in advance, and I can just use it, which will help, um, you know, with the computations a lot. But, but how do you get the data? I guess, how do you get the target, like the amount of carbon? You, you need some kind of ground truth, right? What was yeah. the amount of carbon, I don't know, last year or two days ago? How, how do you get this data? Um, so basically, um, a lot of it was done using, so also there was, they had sort of kept like, a, um, you know, um, a lot of like uh, data base um, mm -hmm. when they were like uh, planting and when they were um, doing different activities. And then um, for like the first initial times, we also used the like more traditional ways by which carbon is uh, carbon sequestration is calculated if it's not done using technology. Um, so, and then like cross-referenced it and it was um, pretty like, okay, like usable. Mm -hmm. uh, the first time I worked on it, it was about 74% accurate. And then we worked our way through it. So now it's uh, more like around 90-ish. 90 right. um, but it, Yeah, but sometimes I'm scared of like overfitting and everything. So Okay, so you take from other sources and then you match that to the images, the past images that you have yeah. and yeah, and also, yeah, exactly. So like the traditional methods, right? Like measuring trees and everything and then extrapolating the results, um, getting it calculated more statistically. So, um, and then sort of comparing the results in different areas. So um usually There are different databases that's available on the internet also either done by, uh, there are some organizations who do it um, mm -hmm. like uh, like Gold Standard, Red Plus. Um, so there are some organizations who um, work on um, providing the quotation of the carbon estimated. And they are like the, um, you know, like uh, the standard that's global standard that's followed in the world. And there are different types of carbon credits that can be issued. So we can also reference it using the methodology that they follow and then do it with the same methodology to get um, an estimate or um, calculation of 
how it would be, how much it would be based on the ground truth. Yeah. And and what do you think is the biggest challenge when you need to, I don't know, estimate that train a model? Is it to collect the data? Is it to find the best model? Is it to train the model? I don't know. What do you think is the most difficult in this project? Um, the data. I mean, it's it's like if you are still working with like a, a developed uh, place or some place which has a good like large database, it's still okay. But there are some places in which the data is just like, you know, so scarce. It's so difficult to find the data and the data is so expensive if you want to buy it. Mm-hmm. Um, and another problem is that if I'm working on a small space um, and I want to buy the data, Uh, the data, the satellite images usually get it in 25 square kilometer. And if I am working on a small data, then I end up paying for 90% of the data that I don't need, right? Mm-hmm. So it's, yeah, so data is the problem. Like the first time when I was working on the project, I struggled for maybe like four and a half, five months to collect enough data to start wow. working on it through um, several different resources. And at that time, we had a partnership with the European Space Agency. I was working with EarthBank. That still helped so much. Um, but even with the European Space Agency, you get like good data if you want to work with Sweden, uh, for example. But um, I was trying to work on another project in a not so developed country and in the Southern Hemisphere. And uh, it was very difficult to collect the data itself. And um, I had to use a lot of open source data, which is not that good, like quality wise, the resolution is pretty bad. Yeah, that's interesting, I think, because when we do AI and machine learning at university or in research, usually you have the data, right? And you need to, I mean, if you work on computer vision, you have ImageNet or standard data sets. If you work on NLP, you have more than enough text data sets. And so you never think about how are we going to get this data because the data is already there for you. But in industry, just even getting the data can be difficult because sometimes you don't have data and you need to find ways to collect it. And it's not straightforward all the time. Yeah. And some like, and if you're working with like, maybe like uh, um, a company which deals with log data, then you have so much of data, but it's mm-hmm. most of it is like gibberish and you have to spend hours and hours cleaning and getting the yeah, on both sides, I think. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. So now that you've done like research and industry, you've done both. Um, which one do you prefer? What do you think are the advantages and disadvantages of working in research vs working in industry um so uh working i think uh, when you're working with research you have enough time to you know like let your creativity flow try things out you can afford to um, experiment a lot more and that's a good thing and that's something that in my opinion leads towards um, innovation in general Um, like the algorithm I was working at KTH, it was created by a professor at KTH. Um, so that was, and he used to sit like two cabins or two rooms across my professor. So that's something that was really amazing. And uh, um, yeah, like, uh, and you can, uh, you know, like you have time to learn new things, like acquire good skills. So that's something that I like about research. Um, as opposed to um, like, you know, like a fast growing startup. Um, but I also really like the ad hoc lifestyle of a startup and you like, you learn so much more than what you signed up for. It's like, I ended up learning a lot more, so more about sales communication, um, stakeholder management, speaking to investors, pitching startups. So um, a lot of different things that I wouldn't have done otherwise. So probably in the long run, I would like to go more towards um, startup or consulting side. Um, But for now, based on what I want to do, I think, and acquire some good skills, um, this is a good option. And also it'll help with my master's as well. And I really want to do master's. Mm. No, yeah, I think that makes sense. That's a good point that you, in industry, you always or very often need to add value. And so you need to 
work on high impact project and you need to deliver solutions very quickly, right? Because you want to make money or want to make your customers happy or want to improve customers' engagement. In research, I guess you have more time to experience things, try new things, do suboptimal things that may lead to longer term improvement. So yeah, I think that's a very good point and that makes sense. Yeah. So I now want to move on to the last part, just some regarding your career and some advice that you may have. So you're also the director of AI for diversity. And so you're involved in this community. So do you want to talk a bit about this? What is this community doing and why is diversity important in AI? Um, so basically, um, AI for Diversity is uh, one of the fastest um, go- growing communities um, within this space right now. And uh, we basically work with, uh, you know, like uh, increasing participation of diverse uh, communities within the world, people from different ethnicities, uh, minorities, culture, uh, backgrounds, uh, you know, like someone who maybe has not had a traditional computer science background, um, maybe someone from psychology or, uh, you know, someone who's an opera singer and they want to break through in this field. So uh, this is sort of a platform where everyone could come together and, uh, you know, like try things out and innovate. And uh, we're going to start some things uh, in uh, Scandinavia soon. And uh, yeah, so it's going to be through a lot of different interesting approaches like hackathons, mentoring, um, you know, uh, collaboration. So a lot of different approaches like that. And I personally think uh, diversity is important in everything in life and not just artificial intelligence, Um, but it plays a very key role because uh, for the past, uh, like if you look at artificial intelligence, like if you look at the stats, for example, um, there's not a lot of people who are working in this field from minorities. Like if you look at women working in AI, it's like 22%. Or um, it goes even bad if you like get into specifics like computer vision or something like that. And uh, it's the same with uh, minorities. Um, like, so it's it's just very important. And in my opinion, um, it's as simple as if you are building a product for a customer. Um, you know, like if I'm building a product for uh, my grandfather. I need his opinions on what the product should be like. And artificial intelligence is basically the technology that we are working on. It's for everyone in the world to use. So we need everyone's representation and inputs on it. If we don't have diverse participation, then the products we are basically um, you know, delivering will not be um, equally useful for everyone. And uh, right now it's a lot better, but you would have come across a lot of like things um, about some face recognition, which was better for certain people and not for some other uh, ethnicities. And, you know, just because of your color or facial features or the voice to text, like it's more apt if you have a longer vocal cord, for example, uh, the gender neutral languages. So there are a lot of like applications like that and uh, it's getting better, but uh, it still needs a lot more, uh, you know, um, I think sometimes it gets intimidating if you are not, if you don't look like most people who work in a certain industry or, you know, it it, it used to happen (laughs) to me uh, sometimes, but then I'm not a person who really cares about what the other person thinks of me. So I'm good. <laughs> don't don't you think another problem is also the data? Like you mentioned yeah. facial recognition and things like that. The the main issue here is that our data is sometimes biased. So you think that having more diverse team can help improve the data as well? Exactly. Um, so that's like that's also sort of what I meant when I said that. I, we would need their opinions and inputs. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, if you look at the facial recognition uh, thing, for example, it works so much better for like white men. And the reason is that probably like 90, 95% of the data used that it came from like that source. 
So it doesn't, if it's mm-hmm. not trained on that data, then it definitely can't recognize it or even, you know. Yeah. The more if, I mean, if minorities would have worked on this project as well, they, they exactly. would have noticed that the data wasn't representative and they would have done something. Exactly. And also the thing is like, if um, I always like my granny used to say that, um, known devil is better than uh, better than unknown satan so uh, known devil is better than unknown uh, you know like a nice spirit or something in hindi uh, in the indian language so it's like if um, you know like if someone's wall, like asking for some information and you don't know what it is about or why it's going to be used you will not be happy or comfortable providing that information and then therefore you have no data from that particular people like um, ethnicity or group or community so it it's important that you you know like when you make a team or when you make a uh, some sort of collaboration you involve people from different places like awareness I think that's also a very important thing like which comes probably before data collection in my opinion they need to know why it's going to be used and then they're going to provide the data no okay yeah that's that's a valid point and yeah i think it's great that you're doing this work so yeah keep it up um i you mentioned you were doing some events is it this summer that you will pick this up yeah like very soon very soon okay cool so yeah follow smirity on linkedin or whatever if you want to learn more about this um strongly encourage minorities to come into the field it's not an easy field but it's accessible to everyone and i'm sure that with some work everyone can do very well exactly and the good thing is that sometimes something that i have observed um is that and you can say like what you feel about it and i would love to hear your opinion also but sometimes it's like uh, if you are not in the field like someone looking from the outside artificial intelligence looks like a very singular field like something with very singularity when you have to do a lot of things, but it's something that probably has the most amount of collaboration, right? Like you work with data analysts, domain experts. I work with people who are expert in trees and, you know, like soil and stuff. So um, I think uh, maybe like a little more understanding that you're also doing, right? Like the projects, like uh, when people come here and they share their experience, Mm -hmm. the masses, the people who want to get in but are intimidated, maybe they get to understand that it's not all the responsibility is not on one person exactly. and it's all shared, compartmentalized. Uh, exactly. You're doing part of the analysis, but then you have the data engineer who is giving you the data and everything. You need to talk with domain experts to understand the problem and their vision and which features should go to your model. So, in the end, it's a lot of communication as well. And it's also it looks like there are a lot of things that you need to know, but you don't need to know everything to be a data scientist. You don't need to know SQL, Python, um, stats, machine learning, um, software engineering. You don't need to be an expert in everything. You just need to have some basis, know one or two fields, and then you can start and you will progress. And that's the most important thing. You don't need to be an expert from day one. Exactly. I mean... Like a lot of people, probably a lot of people reach out to you as well saying that, okay, so do I need like these skills to mm-hmm. become a data scientist? And it's like 17 things and I don't know 10 of them. So I'm like, no, you don't. It's like, just try and you learn a lot on the job. Like you learn so much on the job. Yeah, no, I agree. I usually reply like have some basic maths and basic programming knowledge. The rest you can probably learn on the job or do a course, but yeah. I don't think you need every, if you have some basic maths, basic programming, yeah, you, you should be fine to start knowing more about the field. Exactly. So I just want to ask two quick questions before we finish the episode. The first one is with, with your, well, in your opinion, what's a good data scientist, according to you, what do you think? is what is a good data scientist maybe based on someone that you've worked with or based on your experience what do you think i mean i think uh, someone who's a good data scientist or uh, you know like a good engineer in general maybe um it's just not the technical skills in my opinion like there are a lot of people with great technical skills 
um but in my opinion it's also got to do so much with the communication right if you can explain what the magic is and how it's happening in and communicate it with a good uh, you know like in a good way i think that's something that's very appreciated because most times if you are like deploying a project and working in like commercial processes it has to be white box a uh, white box and explained well if you can get the results that's great but if you can't explain how it's happening or you don't uh, give a provi- uh, provide a good um, straightforward explanation then i think that's a little difficult to you know manage yeah that's a super good point i think like if you've worked on a project and you explain everything in a super complicated way that no one understands people won't like your project and won't think it is useful and you won't be it won't be used because if they don't understand something they're not going to use it right so it's important to explain also in simple terms first you need to communicate but you also need to be understood by others and talk in simple terms to make sure that you're all on the same page so i think it's a yeah very good point so one last question maybe if you just had one advice for someone to progress in their career like just one advice what would it be um my advice would be probably that um, you know not to get intimidated like technology can be very intimidating i was uh, in himalayas for two weeks and when i came back there were already new things in the world <laughs> so um you know like no one knows everything and um, you know like if you want to learn something in technology i think whatever background a person comes from if they practice a little put in some efforts it's easy to learn so i think it's got to do a lot with the you know attitude and practice and not getting intimidated is a huge thing okay well that's uh, also a super good point i completely agree with you um yeah thanks a lot meriti it was really great to chat with you i learned a lot from you yeah was good to chat about climate about ai for diversity and on basically your view on why ai is so important in this world so yeah thanks a lot have a good day and hope to see you very soon thank you so much and the questions you asked was so amazing and i love like your insights and the questions you know it made me think something's in a different way which is always so nice like i learned so much from you and uh, it's really nice and you're doing an amazing job with the podcast cool thank you so much really appreciate that's so nice from you thank you have a good day you as well thank you bye